episode number 18. Welcome to the Higher Life Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff. Another week in the Higher Life Podcast. This week's podcast includes the Parsha of the Week. We're talking about Parsha's Korach. And the no say is, the subject is, why didn't I think of that? How character can limit creativity. Then we're going to have a powerful parable of the Chavetz Chaim about carrying a heavy load. A great story about a great rabbi is going to be Rev Shach explaining the greatness of the Chavetz Chaim. And peace in your home is going to be about getting a rabbi. <laughs> So I'd like to start out with the Torah portion of the week, Korach. For some background information, Korach got together with Dasan Vaviram, B'nai Eliav, Oin, Ben Peles, Ben Ruvin. They were all firstborn, so he wanted to get together with them because they also didn't have positions. And in total, he got together 250 great people, Nisim, princes of Yisrael, to rebel against Moshe Rabbeinu. And he was very upset. Why didn't Moshe also make him a prince? Amram was the first brother, and Moshe and Aaron came from him. But he was the son of Yitzar, which was his second brother. He said, why shouldn't I get a position? My cousin got a position, and he comes from a younger brother. I should be in the one in the position of power. And he was very upset and jealous. So he made an entire rebellion to go against the power of Moshe Rabbeinu as the leader. And he wanted to bring the whole ship down. Now Korach knew that if he failed in this endeavor, he was going to wind up with the death penalty. So what made him fall into this? So Rashi explains he saw the great chain of descendants that emerged from him. First of all, he saw Shmuel. Shmuel was a greater Navi than Moshe and Aaron put together, Chazal tells us. He said, Shmuel's going to come from me. And not only that, there's going to be 24 sets of families that are going to serve in the base of Migdash, all of them Navim. So he said, all this greatness is going to come out of me. I deserve power. I deserve to be in a position of honor. So he came against Moshe and Aaron and he said, Who are you guys? Everybody here is holy. Are you more holy than the other people that are here? Why do you exalt yourself on the congregation of God? So we know what happened at the end. Moshe Rabbeinu taught everybody to get back. And it says like this, When he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the people who were with Korach, and all their possessions. They and all that was theirs descended alive into the pit. The earth covered them over, and they were lost from among the congregation. So I guess it wasn't really a very successful rebellion. So the Orachayim explains that Korach was messing with the order of reality. He says, when God created man, he created a single plant, which compromises all the branches of holiness. And when man sinned, all the souls that were apart with him became defective, flawed. So in order to fix up the mess that Adam made, Hashem in his Torah gave the order in which the Levim and the Kohanim should operate. You can't change the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was the one that received the Torah, Aaron was the Kohen Gadol, the Levim who they were, and Korach was trying to mess with this. So in the end, he was destroyed. So the question that Rev Desler has and the other rabbis is how could this possibly happen to Korach? Korach was an extremely intelligent man. I just explained to you that he had all these great Nevi'im come from him. Shmuel Navi came from him. 
he was chosen to carry the Aaron Kodesh, the Holy Ark. He was a man of a very, very high stature and intelligence. He was one of the richest people that ever lived. So how can he fall into such a thing? Why didn't he humble himself and see this is the way that God wants it? So Rev. Dessler brings Rev. High Gone with an unbelievable parable that he actually brings down in his responsa. So he says it's not stam, it's not simple that he brings this down in the middle of his halachic works. So the parable goes like this. It says, one time there was a lion who wanted to eat a fox for dinner. The fox said to the lion, what good could I be to you? I'll show you a very fat human being and you'll kill him and you'll have plenty to eat. So the fox is going to convince this lion to eat a man instead of to eat him. So there was a pit covered with branches and grass and behind it sat a man. So when the lion saw the man, he said to the fox, I'm afraid this man may pray and cause me trouble. The fox said, nah, nothing will happen to you or to your son. Maybe your grandson will have to suffer for it. Meanwhile, you can eat and be satisfied. Until your grandson comes along, there's still plenty of time. So the lion was persuaded, and he ran towards the man. He fell into the pit, and he was trapped. The fox came to the edge of the pit and looked down at him. The lion said, Didn't you tell me that the punishment would only come upon my grandson? Your grandfather may have done something wrong, and you are suffering for it, replied the fox. Is that fair, asked the lion? The father eats sour grapes, and the children's teeth ache? So why didn't you think of that before, replied the fox. So that is the mushal. So we see from this mushal that the lion wasn't thinking until the end. In other words, the principle is true that the children, the grandchildren, are going to suffer from the sins of their fathers, which we say is true if the grandchildren continue in the sin, so they also get the punishment from the fathers. But the lion didn't think about that until he himself was in the pit. When it came to his own actions, he didn't think about his own grandchildren, and he didn't think about that maybe my grandfather did sins. He just wanted what he wanted, and that was to eat the man. So when he fell in the pit, the fox said to him, why didn't you think of that before? So what do we want to learn from this? So Rav Dessler says, how can it be, if you look in the Pesukim there, in Parshish Korach, that he accused Moshe and Aaron of taking them out of a land flowing with milk and honey? That was talking about Egypt. The people themselves saw what was going on in Egypt. They were enslaved and they were being beaten. And not only this, all the, he convinced all Jewish people to say, yeah, you took us out of the land of milk and honey. How can they present such a foolish argument as if it was so obvious to everybody? So Rav Dessler explains that personal desires block the truth. This very intelligent people, scientists, proclaimed to understand with arguments of great vigor, saying that what they're saying is true beyond the shadow of the doubt, that there is no God, and there is no Torah, and you don't have to do what the Torah says, nothing matters, and they really believe these things. And not only that, they schlep everybody else into their argument, just like Korach did. He says, every sinner wants to lead others to sin, to boost his opinion. And why is that? Because they want to do with their lives what they want to do with their lives. They don't want to humble themselves to the Torah. And they don't want to come on to God and be dependent on God. So they see their opinions as absolute truth and schlep everybody else along with them. So he says, and that exactly was the example of Haigon. The lion always saw was that fat human being that he wanted to eat, some fat meat. And therefore he even knew it was true, the principle, that you could get punished because of the acts of your fathers. But that axiom didn't come into play 
because of the lion's desires. So he says the scholars of today and the scientists are drowned in a sea of materialism. They want to live their lives according to their way. They don't want to have to come unto God and change their lifestyles. So the principle that comes out of this is that a person is blinded by his desires. He could be the biggest genius in the world. He could be the most important person in the world. But if he has desires for something, he's going to bring all kinds of proofs and examples of why he's right. Let's say a person found in the middle of the desert an iPhone. Would you possibly say there was a big bang yeah, there was a big bang and everything exploded and the stars and the forces of the universe, gravity, everything came together and in the end came out this iPhone. A human being is a thousand million times greater, more complicated, more complex than an iPhone. How is it possible to think that a big bang came along and created a human being? It's a ridiculous idea. But why do people like it? Because it frees them from any responsibilities they may have to God. It frees them from morality. Because without God, there is no morality. If we're just plants, trees, or animals, there's no reason to be moral. So we would rather not think things out until the end in order to free ourselves up in the moment. It's like driving with your eyes closed. At a certain point, you're going to hit something. We all know clearly that after 120 years, what happens? Say, nah, worry about it when we get there. But we'd rather not extend our intelligence that far. We'd rather limit our intelligence and our creativity to connect the dots in order to free ourselves up in the moment. I'll give you an example of this that I heard from a Rosh Hashiva. What was considered the blitz of Rav David Leibowitz, the son of the grandson of Rav Naftali Trump, was there's a Gemara, I think it's about that says if you stick your hand in your pocket and take out the wrong coin for the bus, that's considered sar. That's considered enough suffering that you get atonement for that suffering. So Rav David Leibowitz said if that's true, it must be that if we cause that amount of suffering to another person, that we're responsible for that suffering. So they called it the big blitz, a tremendous new idea. In other words, he took that idea and extended it. Maybe he extended it into a place that's not comfortable for most people. They don't want to think about that if I cause this amount of suffering to another person, I'm going to be responsible. But since he feared God and was looking for the right thing to do, he thought of that idea. So you see how your desires can limit your ability to perceive reality. So our rabbis tell us that Korach was actually a reincarnation of Cain, who killed Hevel. So I decided to look over there to see if I get any more insight into this idea that we're speaking about. So Hashem said to Cain, What have you done? The sound of your brother's blood, they cry out to me from the ground. Therefore you are cursed more than the ground, which opened wide its mouth to receive your, bro your brother's blood from your hand. You see the exact thing, that the earth opened up and the blood went into the land. You could see how measure for measure, how Korach went into the land. So Hashem cursed him, he said, when you work the ground, it shall not continue to yield its strength. You should become a wanderer and an exile to the earth. So the Pesukim before that said like this, Hashem said to Cain, where is Hevel your brother? And he said to him, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So Rashi says there, he's like a person who's gonev das. He steals knowledge, like one who steals his supreme knowledge, as if he can fool God. So you see here, this is an unbelievable thing, the exact same quality. He's pretending as if God doesn't know what's going on. The same quality as Korach, going through his life with his eyes closed. In other words, by taking God out of our lives and not living our lives according to God, we think we're actually fooling God. 
We're shutting our eyes to the consequences of our actions. We're closing our minds to what's going to happen after 120 years. We're ignoring the fact that this world is spinning at thousands of miles an hour. And we're only living by the mercy of God. So it's not, what's the big deal? I'll worry about it now. I'll worry about it later. Idiot. Fool. So in Sefer Cheshbon and Nefesh, he explains an unbelievable thing. So we know that man has different levels to his soul. One of the levels is called the Nefesh Bahamias, which is the lowest level. It's basically the physical body energy that a man has to do things. So he says about that part of a man's soul, it has neither the power nor the wisdom to rest or to move. Rather, it is swayed and moved by sudden gusts of winds or desire or pain, instincts which are implanted in it from its formation. It reacts up until the point at which its desires are satisfied and its feelings then cease. In other words, if you are only acting on the lower level of your soul, you're basically just going to run after your desires. After it gets its desire, then it's frozen into a lethargic sleep and unable to move again until another wind of feeling of desire comes and awakens it. In other words, it's just an animal being blown around by its desire as soon as the desire stops, so it also stops. When it faces wind blowing in opposite directions, it follows whichever is strongest at the moment, for it lacks the foresight to judge the future consequences of an action. This is the nefesh behemius inside of a person. He's not thinking about the future. He's not thinking about the consequences of his actions. Always thinking about is now. The favorite word of the Eight Sahara, now. So this is our animal nature. If a person doesn't work on himself to acquire some intelligence, more than your intelligence, it's fear of God. If a person doesn't think about the ramifications of who he is, where he is, why he is here, what is he doing here, why God created him. If he doesn't think about these things, he's like an animal just being led around by his nose, even though he could be the greatest, most intelligent person. But since he has desires for all kinds of perversions and who knows what, so he'll bring proofs that he's right. And he's not even scared. Rabbi Yechezkel Levenstein says like this in Rabbi Yechezkel, Acquiring the attribute of betachon, of faith, is a very difficult task. It's a really difficult task to have faith in God, to really believe God's controlling everything and he's going to give you what you need. But there's a relationship there. That is a very difficult task. Nevertheless, the average person is convinced he has faith. And their faith is that nothing bad is going to happen to them. So what does he say? God should save us from this type of faith. It's a false faith. It's a false security. We're living under a false security. We assume everything's going to be okay. Everything's been okay up till now. So why not? I can continue doing what I want. I can continue in my sins. I can do whatever I want. I'm a free agent. The Miktav Melia also brings, it's important to distinguish between optimism which is not true betachon, and which faith, and betachon and faith, which is trusting in God despite being afraid. In other words, real faith has fear in it. Real faith understands that there's, there's a creator and there's a consequences to my action. I'm not a free agent. Every move I make is going to have a ramification. It's going to affect my life and my children and my grandchildren. But Korach was lacking in his fear of God. He didn't know his place. And it was because of his greatness. Rabbi Yisrael says, an ignorant person with bad character is like an unarmed robber. He's ignorant, so he's unarmed. But a learned person with bad character is like a fully armed robber. He's dangerous. So in certain sense, the more intelligent we are, the more learned we are, if we don't have good character and we don't have fear of God, we're more dangerous. We're dangerous to ourselves and to society because our warped perception of reality doesn't see the ramifications of what we're doing. So what's the answer to this problem? 
The answer is the fear of God. It says, Reishi's chokma yiras Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, a very unpopular term in our society. What does it mean, fear of God? It means that you understand that every, not everything is taken for granted. Just because we're healthy today doesn't mean we'll be healthy tomorrow, God forbid. Just because the person has money today, it's going to continue tomorrow. Just because the world is spinning today, it's going to spin tomorrow. Just because the sun came up yesterday, it's going to come up tomorrow. No, everything is being controlled by God. That's called fear of God. So I want to end up with a Pusik from Mishle. It says like this. A wise man fears and turns away from evil, but a fool oversteps the bounds and is confident. Don't live with a fool's confidence. Have a real relationship with God. Understand, he's the creator. He's the one making that the world doesn't burn up, that it doesn't blow up, that it doesn't freeze. Global warming, wars, disease, who knows what could happen. Not that you're supposed to be afraid in the sense that you're scared you can't walk out of your house. No, that's called real faith. Real faith is understanding, yes, I am dependent upon God. And yes, every detail of my life and what's going to happen to me, my children, my grandchildren, my society, all those things are dependent upon God. But I have faith. I'm going to try my best to do the right thing. And God will help me and God will help society and God will bring good into society. God only wants good for us. So the Malbim says on this verse, let me read the verse again. A wise man fears and turns away from evil, but a fool oversteps his bound and is confident. The Malbim says, to learn to be moral, a person needs a framework of discipline, since his natural instincts draw him away from morality. Like we said before, if you just go according to your animal nature, there isn't a morality. This discipline is called the fear of God. Beautiful. The awareness that a great king stands over him, observing his deeds. Thus, he will be ashamed to do anything before his maker's will. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be scared. The beginning of moral wisdom, therefore, is fear of Hashem. This is the condition and the means to wisdom. So since the wise man fears the Almighty, he turns away from evil. His natural inclinations are disciplined so that it cannot run wild. The fool, on the other hand, overreaches himself and oversteps the proper bounds. He runs wild past all restraints of discipline and wisdom. Having no fear of the Almighty, he has instead a foolhardy confidence. He gets false confidence. And where does he get his false confidence? Because he's blinded, like we said before. Since he has desires, he's blocked out from seeing the reality. He thinks he's, everything's fine. And he's running like a wild animal, chasing after all the immorality of society. And he thinks everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. Mabaya, what's the problem? So the moral of the story is that we need to work on our fear of God. We have to believe that our actions have real consequences. And when we do that, our minds will open up to be able to see reality clearly. And we won't be blinded anymore. I want to tell over a parable of the Chavetz Chaim. It sounds like this. Sweating under the weight of his burden, the poor man trudged along the road. Suddenly, he heard the sound of a carriage behind him and dashed off to the side of the road. The carriage came to the halt beside him, and a wealthy owner called out, Can I give you a lift? Toss your bags to the carriage and hop in. The poor fellow was overjoyed and quickly entered the carriage and unloaded his bags. But one small pack he kept on his back. So the carriage owner says to him, Why don't you also put your bag down and relax? He said, no, you're so kind to me already. Taking my big bags and me, 
I don't want to burden you with this small pack, so I'll carry it. <laughs> that was the musha. What was the nimshal? People place much importance on having money to put away for a rating day, to support themselves in case things don't go so well. If yes, one of them, how he expects to support himself through his entire years of his life, no problem. I have faith in God. He'll provide me with a livelihood. When it comes to his whole entire life, he has no problem he believes in God. But when he's worried about small things, he's worried about a rainy day. So he says, I got to put this money on the side. He says, such a person is like the foolish traveler who puts his entire burden on the provider's carriage, but leaves the little pack which he must take care of himself. This is not true, he says. Cast your burden upon God, says Tehillim, and he will support you. In the end, you have to place your faith in God, so you might as well have confidence in him for the rainy day as well. He says, anyway, you're going to have to rely on God. Anyway, the only way to make it through life is to rely on God. So you might as well rely on God until the very end. The moral of the story is don't try carrying your own bag if God is giving you a lift. In other words, if you have your Shemayim and you're doing the right thing, you have to assume God's going to help you until the end. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. I want to tell you a story about Chavetz Chaim, but this was story was told over by Rav Shach. So Rav Shach said about the Chavetz Chaim, he was the last of the Gedolim to know how to interpret a period, which means he was able to bring things down to a very simple level. He said the Chavetz Chaim was able to bring difficult problems down to their essence to be able to say them over to the people. So he says about the Chavetz Chaim, if you look into his works, Chavetz Chaim was the master of halacha. He was the Garoador. Mr. Brewer, we all follow the Mr. Brewer now. If you look into the Mr. Brewer, the Bir Halacha, you'll see tremendous complexity and analytical expertise. But when it comes to his Musser books, they're written in a very simple style. So Rav Shach explained. He says, yeah, it's true. In our diminished level of fear of God, the only thing that's going to move us is when we hear something deeply intellectual. But the Chavetz Chaim was on a completely different level. He lived and breathed intense faith in God. He didn't need the intellectual approach when it came to the fear of God. The fear of God flowed from his veins. What he wrote in those inspirational works represented his own feelings and outlooks. In other words, he honed it down himself to such a simple, basic level that he was able to give it over in that way. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. So peace in Your Home, this is again Reverend Victor Miller. He says, you have to have a rabbi. And as soon as a couple was married, the new couple should attach themselves personally to a rabbi, who they respect and remain under his influence. It's very important for a couple to have a rabbi. Not only that, but they should also have a kehillah. That it should also be part of a society. Very important to have a rabbi and be part of a society, be part of a shul, be part of something. This is going to help in Shalom Bias. This is going to help to keep your family together. When you become close to a rabbi, both of you, both the man and the woman, and they're part of a group, so that's going to help keep their own personal family together. And he says it's because you're going to be embarrassed. What are people going to say? In other words, if you're connected with the society, connected, what are people going to say about you? He says, how many misdeeds have been averted by that attitude? He says, when a woman marries a man who has no rebbe, He's not connected with his Rosh Hashiva. It's a big problem. He says, sometimes, call, sometimes women call me up. Can you please speak to my husband? So he says, where does he daven? She says, he davens in 15 different places. Who's his Rebbe? He doesn't have a Rebbe. So he's guy's out of control. He's not going to listen to anybody. He's not connected. So woman, it's very important that your husband has a Rebbe. It's like insurance, he says. And the insurance is, what are people going to say? What's the rabbi going to say about me? It puts a little fear into the husband. It puts a little fear into the husband that he can't just do whatever he feels like. 
He says, sometimes people go over to somebody's house and they say, you wouldn't believe what's going on over there. Nobody knows what goes on in that nice house. He says, yeah, but at least they like, close their windows. Nobody knows. This is also something. In other words, there should be some kind of fear that uh, the couples don't just go wild. So he says, sometimes people tell me, yes, my husband has a Rebbe. Where is he? He's in Eretz Yisrael. He's in Israel. This guy's in New Jersey. His Rebbe's in Israel. What's that going to help? Or he says, yeah, he has a Rebbe. His Rebbe's been dead for 150 years. He says, a dead Rebbe? Maybe you can go to his grave once in a while in Russia, but he's not going to be able to intervene. He's not going to come back to the dead and speak to the husband. He says, you need a live Rebbe who's going to call up your husband and put him on the carpet. In other words, you have to have a real live Rebbe, a real live Kehillah, be part of a shul in order to help your marriage because this will put a little fear of God into your household. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. Please share it with your friends. If you enjoyed it and it helped you, it can help others also. Also, leave comments. Send in a voicemail and I'll put you on next week's podcast. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Higher Life Podcast. Just visit RabbiMinterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments. 